0: For Tumi, nothing is ever quite finished. It can always be evolved. Introducing the latest evolution of Tumi, the aluminum backpack and briefcase from the 19-degree aluminum collection. Toomey reimagined these everyday essentials in aircraft-grade aluminum with contours sculpted at precise 19-degree angles. Carry the aluminum backpack and briefcase from Toomey to perfect journeys near or far. Shop Toomey's full 19-degree aluminum in stores and online at Tumi.com.
1: From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker.
2: Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from The Wall Street Journal editorial page. We're delighted you're listening to this podcast. If you enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please be kind enough to leave us a favorable review. Now, at the journal's editorial page, we believe strongly in free expression. And so each week on this podcast, we explore in depth and candor issues of topical interest. We speak in depth to people who are leading figures in their field, practitioners, experts, commentators, to give us a better understanding of the major issues of our times. This week, my guest is John Yu, Constitutional Law Scholar and Professor of Law at University of California, Berkeley. After teaching and writing about constitutional law for several years, John joined the administration of George W. Bush in 2001. After the terrorist attacks of 9-11, he was a key figure in the development of a legal framework for prosecuting the war on terror. He helped draft one of the most consequential and controversial pieces of legal advice in modern presidential history, the 2002 Bybee Memo, justifying the use by U.S. forces of what were called enhanced interrogation techniques for terrorist suspects. The memo, dubbed by its critics, the torture memo, was used as the legal basis for measures such as waterboarding, sleep deprivation, and other tactics that some, including in the military itself, regarded as unacceptable and unlawful. The opinion was later rescinded, but Professor Yu and others continue to defend it, saying not only was it the right constitutional interpretation, but it was also very effective in saving lives during the war on terror. After the Bush administration, Professor Yu returned to academia and has authored many articles on constitutional administrative law, and as well as on other subjects. Most recently, he was also in the news as one of the lawyers who advised Mike Pence, after Donald Trump had pressured him to overturn the results of the 2020 election, John Yu saying that the vice president had no constitutional power to alter the election result. And I'm very pleased to say that John Yu joins me now. Professor Yu, thank you very much for joining me.
1: Oh, Jerry, thanks for having me on. It's a real pleasure. I'm a long listener of this podcast, although it's only been on for a few months.
2: Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. Well, long may you stay. So I hope I don't say anything today that makes you cease to be a listener. So I'm sure we'll have a very good conversation. I want to start, John, if I may, with there's a lot to talk about, including some of those things I talked about in the introduction. But I want to talk about we're right in that fascinating period when we get a spate of Supreme Court decisions. And we're obviously are waiting for the really big ones that everybody's talking about. I want to talk a little bit about the cases on abortion and maybe on gun rights too. We're recording this on Tuesday. There was one re- decision, particularly that the court came down with today, which I think was particularly interesting, which was the case of Carson, a religious freedom case involving the state of Maine, in which the court by a 63 majority, the opinion authored by Chief Justice John Roberts, found that the state of Maine did not have the right to exclude religious schools from a program whereby it allows parents to use public funds to send their children to to private schools, but excluding parochial schools when there isn't a a public school option. Just give us a sense, John, not so much on the details of the decision itself, but where you think that decision and maybe any of the other decisions that we've seen today stands in terms of what it tells us about the overall direction of the court on these big, issues such as religious freedom and some of these other big uh, important topics.
1: I'm glad you didn't ask me to summarize what the case itself said, because you already did that. It'd been pretty good. I give you an A in class for that. There's nothing left for me to talk about. <laughs> but I guess I could place it in the historical context of where the court's been on church and state. As you said, Jerry, what does it mean for the larger direction of the court this year across other issues and then also religion? across many years. If people are starting to realize, I think, in the liberal media at least, that this Supreme Court is the culmination of decades of effort by conservatives to appoint justices and lower court judges who are guided more by the original understanding of the Constitution, that the Constitution's text should be interpreted based on the understandings of those who wrote and ratified it and give as little leeway to judges today, to make policy, to read their own preferences into the words of the Constitution. And if you wanted to look at the single issue where you can see that most clearly, it's church and state relations. No matter what the court does on Roe versus Wade this week, no matter what the court does with guns this week, the change happened earlier and more profoundly and church-state issues. And the reason why, is you could say, one of the things that the Warren Court did under the chief justiceship of Earl Warren was to erect what it called a wall of separation between church and state, primarily motivated by cases where the court was confronting school districts that required prayer at the beginning of school days or prayer at ceremonies like graduation. And over the years, the court steadily tried to drive religion out of public life, out of the public sphere, out of schools and so on. And then over the last 30 years, the court has been moderating that stance. And the case, as you described it, Jerry, is exactly right. Here's a program that gave money to parents to use to go to schools. Can't say I've ever been to these school districts, but Maine is so sparsely populated that half of the districts there don't have high schools. And so the state of Maine was giving families money to pay for high school, except not religious schools. And the court said in this case, as it has said in several cases, if the government is going to give money to families to use for education, religious schools can't be exempted. And then there's another line of cases that says, and again, this case is a restatement of that principle. And if the government has programs to give out benefits to groups, to individuals, it can't bar religious groups from participating in those programs on equal footing with everybody else. These are programs, as Justice Breyer points out in his dissent, these are programs that 40, 50 years ago would have been struck down by large majorities of the Supreme Court. But now you've seen, again, the court is standing firm on this principle that religious groups have to at least be treated neutrally. They can't be singled out and excluded from public life in the way they were under the Warren Court in the years after.
2: How far do you think this could go, John, this rolling back of that Warren Court church-state separation? We've seen the court upholding the use of education school vouchers for parents to send their children to religious schools. We've now seen this case. In what areas, whether it's education or indeed other areas, do you think it's possible that we could see cases that may come up which may further break down that sharp separation that the Warren court seemed to want to establish.
1: I hate making predictions because Yogi Berra said predictions are really hard because they're about the future, but we're going to try. So there is one more case on the docket of this term, which is the case of the football coach who had voluntary religious prayer at the end of the game. And you might see if you watch the NFL or college football games, at the end of the game, a lot of the players gather together at the half field and engage in a prayer. And this has become very popular over the last few years. So there's a coach up in uh, Washington State who was doing this. After the game, it was perfectly voluntary, but a lot of players started doing it. And he was eventually prohibited from doing it. Eventually, I think he was fired. If that case is still pending, I think the court will also say that that coach had a right to hold those prayers and that he couldn't be fired or retaliated against in any way. So I think that's still to come. After seeing the case today, I have a hard time believing that the court's going to say voluntary prayers on school property are prohibited by the Constitution. I think, Jerry, as you suggest, you could see more aid programs. I think the big front, this also has been going on for many years, has been how do we deliver welfare? How do we deliver Uh, Social support programs from the government to the poor and most needy. Often, in many places, the most effective institution is going to be churches. Something Tocqueville talked about many, many years ago how these associations like churches are really the backbone of our private civil society. And so, people who really believe in a high wall of separation between church and state do not want religious organizations participating in the delivery of welfare benefits, providing food, or job training or places to sleep and so on through the financial support of the federal or state government. I think you could see uh, much more room under this court's jurisprudence for religious organizations to get involved in helping or carrying out government programs.
2: Let's talk about the dog that hasn't barked yet, as it were, which is the the, the big decision that we're all expecting, which we kind of think we we know what we're going to get because of that infamous leak. That we had last month. And I want to talk to you also about the leak itself. That should be the Dobbs that didn't bark. Thank you very much. I might borrow that one. But anyway, it didn't bark today. But obviously, it's going to bark at some point. Again, from what you saw of that Samuel Alito opinion, we think we know the vote was 5-4, that Alito was authoring them and sort of the majority opinion there. What's your sense of how robust that will be and how close that the final opinion in the Dobbs case will be to the one that we saw that was leaked, uh, written by Sam Alito?
1: It's a tough question. And also, we have to take into account the political reaction to the leak and whether that's had any effect on the justices. I think if we took the way, the, I think, just incredible, outrageous attacks that are going on the justices, including the assassination attempt on Justice Kavanaugh and the constant protesting at the justices' houses, at the court, Uh, the doxing of the justice's home addresses, if it were not for that, I would have every confidence that the court would stick to this opinion, that it would at least be five votes to overturn Roe. Uh, In fact, I don't think the opinion is that uh, radical in the sense that if the court were to issue an opinion overturning Roe, this is exactly what you would want it to look like. It really just summarizes 40 years of consistent criticism of Roe, not just from conservatives, but from very liberal voices, including Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself. The only vote that we really don't know about, according to the leaks, is Chief Justice Roberts. And here, justices are being consistent to their attitude at oral argument. If you remember the oral arguments back in December, the five justices who comprise the majority, according to leaks, uh, Thomas Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. At oral argument, they were very tough on Roe. They seemed to suggest they were going to overrule Roe. Chief Justice Roberts, who clearly doesn't want the court to overturn Roe, you know, has given speeches saying he wants the court to act in a minimalist way, on the narrowest grounds possible, was trying to find some kind of compromise, which I think legally didn't make sense. Politically, I could see it making sense, which was this idea that the court could uphold. The law here, which bans abortion after 15 weeks, but doesn't overturn Roe versus Wade either. But it was interesting when he floated that ideal oral argument, none of the conservatives and interestingly, none of the liberal justices, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, had any interest or support in it. And so the leaks reportedly say, oh, Chief Justice Roberts is still trying to play footsie there in the middle, hoping to detach someone from that five-justice conservative majority to join him in this sort of made-up compromise. But according to all reports, that's failed so
2: far and hasn't worked. If, again, if it is a 5-4 decision to overturn Roe, where will that leave us? I mean, again, the obvious answer is it will leave us as it's intended to leave us, which is that the abortion will be a matter for legislatures in states to decide, and we'll have a patchwork in the United States, right? We'll have 50 states with 50 different abortion laws. Do you think it's likely to be sustained? Is that now going to be the... Dobbs state of legal affairs for abortion in this country, or do you see further down the line some federal involvement, or is it really is going to be a federalist, if you like, solution rather than a federal one?
1: It's tough to see exactly how it'll come out. Underlying everything will be, as you suggest, this federalist idea of diversity. Uh, This is the kind of diversity conservatives like diversity of policies throughout the country, with perhaps an overlay of some federal efforts to try to influence, but can't change that fundamental hardwiring of diversity in our Constitution for most issues. So I would start with saying it's not incredible or crazy for this to be the case. You have examples of life and death issues, which are handled state by state. Take capital punishment. You could carry out the same murder in one state, step a few miles over the border, and then do the same murder in another state, and one you're subjected to death, one you're not. Actually, if you look at the Dobbs opinion, it's very interesting. It relies heavily on a case written by Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, denying a constitutional right to euthanasia and explaining why the states should be in charge, again, of a very important life or death issue, euthanasia. In all those circumstances, the Constitution creates, the the court emphasizes, Dobbs emphasizes, this earlier case is called Glucksberg, emphasizes that our Constitution is hardwired to allow states to make the basic decisions over most policies that affect everyday life. Think about criminal law, right? Think about policing. And you go family law. Think about welfare. Those are all primarily state-based issues. And the constitution permits. So you have that, and I think so you know, abortion going back to the states for a democratic decision and diversity policies is nothing unusual. In fact, that's the regular order of business for constitutional issues. A very complicated part, I think. Of your question, Jerry, is what could the federal government do once Dobbs is overruled? So you could see a world if suppose Congress and the president were pro-choice, they could pass laws allowing abortions to be provided at federal institutions. You could have abortions provided through travel vouchers. The federal government could give money out to anybody to allow them to go to another state to get an abortion. You could see the federal government providing for free you know, what are called the morning after pills, you know, abor- pills that you know cause abortion. You could even see the federal government, if it wanted to be really aggressive, trying to use its power over the health insurance markets uh, through Obamacare to try to force insurers to provide for abortions too. So there's a lot of things the federal government can do as incentives, but what it can't do, it can't preempt or override now the state's you know, fundamental sovereign right to decide whether to allow abortion as a matter of state policy, or to try to ban
2: it. Just very briefly on on this issue of the leak, and as you've said, these extraordinary egregious protests at a point of an attempted assassination of a justice. How does that change the way the court works, do you think, John? I mean, it is presumably trust. And again, I think we can probably assume that the trust between the justices themselves is pretty strong. And we've seen some instances in the last week in which Justice Sotomayor said some very, very uh, nice kind things about Justice Clarence Thomas, with whom she disagrees on almost everything. But So perhaps there's a degree of comedy there. But but as the court as an institution, how much is that going to affect the ability of the court to work together as effectively as it needs to? So
1: I had the opportunity, uh, Jerry, to interview Justice Thomas in a public forum in Dallas about a month ago. And it was actually a forum about African-American policies on Poverty, family, education, religion, and so on. But I couldn't help but start the interview by asking him for his comments and thoughts about how is the court functioning as an institution after the leak? And his comments were very bracing. You could tell from his body language, his tone, how deeply hurt he was by the leak. And he said that it would change the nature of the court for a long time, if not permanently. And he said it inevitably caused the justices to lose trust in each other. He said something along the lines of, you would have to be looking over your shoulder all the time. And so that's coming from a justice of the Supreme Court himself. And I do think, as Justice Sotomayor's comments the other day reflect, they do have a great deal of personal affection for each other. But on the other hand, this leak was a strike at the heart of what makes the court a different kind of place than Congress and the presidency. The Congress and the presidency leaks are part of everyday life. Nevertheless, this had never happened at the Supreme Court. This is the first time an actual opinion of the court has ever been leaked. We're talking about 200 years, hundreds of justices. And as far as I can tell, there's, well, maybe only one or two examples ever of an opinion leaking at the lower federal courts. So you're talking about the whole institution of the judiciary and maybe one or two cases over 200 years of any opinion ever leaking. And the reason why I say it really strikes at the heart of what makes the institution different is that the Supreme Court, I clerked there, I clerked for Justice Thomas, I, I saw it in action. It's remarkable how much work they do themselves. The justices really do the work themselves. They only have four clerks who assist them. They really believe in persuasion and negotiation. They don't treat being on the court as just an exercise in voting. And so as part of that effort to persuade, to convince, you know, when you look at the published opinions, those are in a way the record of how they tried to persuade each other, the reasons they gave each other. You need a certain kind of confidentiality so that they can argue in private, so they can be candid with each other. They circulate these opinions to each other well in advance of when they issue in cases involving billions of dollars in the markets or huge changes to our society. And it never leaks in ahead of time because they need to have the ability to persuade and negotiate with each other. If that's taken away, then you could see the court becoming more like Congress and the president, where blocks of justices only secretly write opinions and talk amongst themselves and then kind of spring it on the public. uh, you don't see uh, dissents and concurrences, which sort of in good faith really engage with each other and the issues, and then the court really just becomes an exercise in nine people voting like a little legislature, and it makes the court more of a political body and less of a body guided by the rule of law. I think, and so that's why I think that people have a right should be upset not just because of the breach of confidence, but the longer term how it attacks the institution of the judiciary is separate from politics.
2: How would you characterize this Roberts court now? Six justices appointed by Republican presidents, a range of splits in terms of decisions. We still get the number of nine zero decisions and eight ones and seven twos. That six three split is obviously important, but it does look increasingly as though Roberts himself is not the fulcrum of the court. Is that right? And do you think it's more Kavanaugh or Gorsuch, maybe, who are kind of the swing? decisive voters on the court here, but but give us your sense of what the composition of the court is and in terms of its sort of ideological direction and who's driving the, the court in its key decisions.
1: Before Amy Coney Barrett joined the court, you had kind of a rough balance between four conservatives and four liberal justices with Chief Justice Roberts sitting in the middle there. And Chief Justice Roberts, by no means a liberal, he is a right of center. But he also worries about the institution of the court. He worries about the political attacks on the court. And so his goal is to try to reduce the profile of the court. So always sort of hemming, trying to pull the court in as much as he can. With the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the court, Chief Justice Roberts started to lose that influence. Uh, You see it in the Dobbs opinion itself. The Dobbs opinion doesn't really have any Trimming of the sails to it. It really sort of forthrightly overturns Roe versus Wade and gives, you know, very, I think, conventional reasons as to why. But it's not an opinion that someone like Chief Justice Roberts would want because it throws a bomb into our national politics. So, in terms of where the, as you put it very, right, the fulcrum of this, because if you, you need five votes for a majority on the court, Chief Justice Roberts is now the sixth vote of the conservative majority because uh, you have Thomas, who is the most conservative justice, and the longest serving on on the court now. And probably, I would say, having clerked for him, he's probably more the aggressively conservative justice, the one who's most committed to originalist principles, regardless of the consequences today. And I think very close to him, you have Justice Alito, the author of the Dobbs leaked draft. And then I think you described, well, I think probably Amy Coney Barrett is Next and then, or Neil Gorsuch, and then probably Brett Kavanaugh is the one who's sort of closest to Chief Justice Roberts. Probably the one who would be most amenable to some kind of compromise. Uh, and this is just based on his work as a lower court judge. He, as a justice, he really hasn't had a chance yet to do much. Uh, as as and Coney Barrett, I'll tell you the one issue you'll be able to tell whether your prediction is right, whether uh, my sense of it is right too that. The fulcrum really is one of the Trump justices and no longer Chief Justice Roberts is their attitude to precedent, stare decisis, we call it in the law, the idea that you give respect to past opinions. Because a lot of the past opinions are very liberal opinions, and a lot of what's saving them uh, now is not whether the justices today think they're correct on the merits, but whether the justices today give them respect or place highly the value of not disrupting the law and politics too much. If you had listened to the Dobbs oral argument, you would have got a sense of it. Even the three liberal justices, uh, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Keegan, were not defending Roe on the merits. They were not actually making affirmative arguments that abortion and this right to privacy are in the Constitution. Almost everything they said was, we have to preserve Roe because it's an old opinion and it's been the law for 50 years and we shouldn't be disruptive to change it. Whereas Justice Thomas, as I said, the most aggressive conservative justice, he actually does not believe in obeying precedent at all. And I don't blame him because he would often say you know, in chambers, and he, he said so publicly, if that were the case, does that mean Brown versus Board of Education was wrong to overturn segregation and Plessy versus Ferguson and the laws of the Jim Crow that were held throughout the South? So, that really is the defining issue because you asked really, Jerry, about what does this mean with the court as a whole across many issues? That's really the fundamental issue is how far will this court go in pursuing a return to a more modest, narrow constitution based on originalist principles? How far will it go in overturning the decisions of the past?
2: Will this court be seen as a kind of conservative counterpoint to, say, the liberalism, the progressivism of the Warren Court? Do you think it'll be seen as as historically significant as that?
1: I think it will. Uh, in some ways, it's actually more prepared for that role because the Warren Court had this kind of making it up as they were going along flavor to it. In contrast, this court has the benefit of 30, 40 years of dissent by people like Justice Scalia, who didn't get to see a lot of this, but he laid a lot of the intellectual foundations for it. Or Judge Robert Bork in his opinions, his books, his writings, his speeches. Bork and Scalia laid a lot of the foundation for it. And then Justice Thomas, in many of his dissents and opinions, has been laying the intellectual foundations for this for 30, 40 years. And so the theories are there, the doctrines are there, if these justices want to take advantage of it. I think they do. I think they're part of a ecosystem of conservative ideas and thinking about the court and the Constitution that you you see really expressed in the Dobbs opinion itself. And so if they take that attitude, the Haven Dobbs, and apply it to other places like cutting down the size of the massive administrative slash welfare state, getting the Congress making decisions rather than handing all the great social issues off to these unelected administrators. If they take that attitude to those issues, then I think you're right. The historians will say, well, this was the conservative answer to the Warren court. I don't know what you would call it, the anti-Warren court, which would be ironic because that's not what Chief Justice Roberts really uh, ever wanted.
2: We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with John Yu. Stay with us.
0: For Tumi, nothing is ever quite finished. It can always be evolved. Introducing the latest evolution of Tumi, the aluminum backpack and briefcase from the 19-degree aluminum collection. Tumi reimagined these everyday essentials in aircraft-grade aluminum with contours sculpted at precise 19-degree angles. Carry the aluminum backpack and briefcase from Tumi to perfect journeys near or far. Shop Toomey's full 19-degree aluminum in stores and online at tumi.com.
2: Welcome back. We're talking with John But Moving on, John, to January 6th. We've been watching these hearings, obviously, more today, Tuesday. We now know that you were one of those who advised Mike Pence about his role on that day, that he had no constitutional authority to overturn the elections. So I don't want to go back too much over that. Obviously, Donald Trump continues to beg to differ and continues to think that an alternative way could have been found. As you watch these hearings and you look at the political but also the kind of the legal discussions that are being made, do you think that these hearings are making a case that what Donald Trump tried to do was not only politically intolerable, but is he going to be exposed, do you think, to potential criminal? sanction? Give us a sense of what you've seen so far and where you see it going.
1: Put your finger on what's the really fundamental tension, what's going on with these hearings. And I think for this January 6th committee is, are they really in the business of just sort of laying out for the American people what happened, why it happened, how do we prevent it from happening in the future? Which is perfectly legitimate for congressional committees. That's actually really the primary goal of hearings in Congress. Or- Are they really trying to carry out almost a prosecutorial function? Are they trying to produce information, lay the groundwork to push the Justice Department uh, into a decision the Justice Department is clearly reluctant to make, which is should the government indict Donald Trump? For what happened the weeks before, and then ultimately what happened on January sixth, the founders, I think, would have looked very suspicious of what's going on. One thing that they repeated over and over again, and they got this idea from Montesquieu, who in his spirit of the laws, was this idea: the power to make the laws and prosecute them should never be in the hands of the same person. They repeated that principle, it was a maxim to the founders, and so what would have disturbed them is the idea that Congress was really using its Uh, investigatory powers really to try to produce a prosecution. You know, that said, if that's what the January 6th committee is trying to do, I haven't seen anything new yet, which adds to what the prosecutors have to decide. If you've followed what's happened uh, closely, uh, you know, the hearings have been vivid. They've been successful, I think, in making real what happened on January 6th. The extent to which people in the Trump re-election campaign did try to change the outcome of the election but almost everything that's been presented was already known if you had followed the different investigations and leaks and what people said in their memoirs and uh, media interviews so that's the thing that i think is still left is is the january 6 committee actually going to produce new unknown facts that actually have this link and this is the piece that's missing so far it's the link either between donald trump And the more violent parts of the crowd that actually broke into the Capitol, the parts of that crowd who clearly had law enforcement or military backgrounds and were intent on kidnapping members of Congress or the vice president were intent on actually preventing Congress from you know witnessing the opening of the electoral votes. Or did President Trump in some way cross the line in all of these legal efforts to try to convince Mike Pence to block the electoral votes from the states, did he do that corruptly? Because that's the key thing. It's not a crime for President Trump just to have a different view of how the 12th Amendment works, to have a different view about whether electoral votes are legitimate from those states, and to make his good faith arguments to Mike Pence to say, you know, I'm presenting you my side of things. There's a line between that and then someone who says, I know what I'm doing is not constitutional, and I'm going to use... Undo methods of pressure to try to change the outcome of an election, because that knowing it's illegal, that's a hard case to make. Even if it weren't the president, that's a hard case to make against someone. And then to make it against the president, that would be unprecedented. No, no president has been indicted for something he did as president in our history. In fact, the founders thought most of that would be handled by impeachment. And of course, President Trump was impeached for this, but he was acquitted. But the founders also allowed for the possibility of prosecution of ex-presidents, but our political system has never taken that dramatic a step. And so if you were the prosecutors, I was a Justice Department official, you were to take that last step. You better have the evidence tied down. Everything's gotta be square. You've got to be hundred percent sure
2: you think you're gonna win in a
1: before a jury. And that is if you took that step and lose, you might be making Donald Trump president in twenty twenty
2: four. Do you think from what you've seen of the hearings, do you think that the committee has made a case? that Donald Trump did indeed behave with corrupt intent to essentially subvert the constitutional process. I mean, do you think they've made that case? But I say that not necessarily to repeat the question about whether he should be prosecuted, but just in terms of the argument, do you think they've made the case? But I have watched all the hearings.
1: Uh, I'm one of those <laughs> weird people who finds it <laughs> irresistible television. And I have to say also sort of personal you know, knowledge. I mean. Uh, Uh, Greg Jacob, Vice President Pence's counsel, I think I gave him his first job. The way I've been thinking about it was, suppose I was in the Justice Department now, and I had to make that decision. Clearly, there is a team. The Attorney General did make reference to it. I think there should be a team going through all this evidence, watching the hearings, trying to decide whether to bring charges against the President and people involved in his campaign, like Rudy Giuliani, I think, is clearly someone they're looking at. John Eastman, I think, is someone they're Obviously, looking at, Jerry, you're asking a tough question. You're asking the question like you're the foreman of the jury in this trial, which is the key thing is not whether he, you know, was trying to get the counting the electoral votes suspended. And I think there's no constitutional provision for this to send it back to the states to sort of redo the appointments of the electors. There's nothing in constitutional text which allows that to happen. you Jerry, but I went and talked to Trump once in the Oval Office for quite some time, and I found that he's... Kind of like a salesman who can convince himself of the most incredible things that other people might not believe. That's the hard thing to tell here. I don't know if you agree with me on that. I'm curious what your thoughts are. It's like he kind of reminded me of like you know someone from literature, almost like Death of a Salesman or something. Like I think he's a salesman, and did he persuade himself? in reality that there was fraud. I mean, does he really believe it? It's hard to prove that he doesn't.
2: I suspect that's right. There's been a bit of a sort of flurry over the weekend about a story that supposedly Trump said to somebody, you know, can you really believe I lost to this guy referring to Biden? And this has been taken as evidence that he did really know he NOS. But I don't buy that. I take your view entirely. I absolutely think that Trump is absolutely capable of convincing himself. He's so convinced of his own sort of essentially invincibility that I think he just has convinced himself that he won the election and that despite the failure to make the case in multiple court hearings, despite the failure to make the larger, I think, political case to the country as a whole. I think he's absolutely convinced. For better or worse, your name probably is going to be remembered for many things, but your name is going to be synonymous with the famous memo. It's 20 years on since the memo that you helped, since the legal advice that you gave and that you helped the war on terror, the approach to the war on terror that you helped shape, and particularly the treatment of terrorist suspects. 20 years on, as you look back on that, do you think that that stood the U.S. in a good position to prosecute the war on terror, But either from the very specific and narrow question, but important question of the ability to extract information from important suspects in the way that the US probably did, but putting it into the larger context of the reputation of the impact that that had, that that decision and the, the policy that it had, and we saw some of the abuses of that with Abu Ghraib and that comes up. But as you look at all of that and the way in which you helped the US to prosecute that war on terror 20 years ago, would you do it all again?
1: Yes, I would. I think one thing um, people don't, realize or perhaps we've forgotten is how uncertain everything was 20 years ago. We really didn't know much about Al-Qaeda. Many of the factors you describe, how we should think about the policy. What intelligence did it yield versus the abuses that may have occurred in the way we implemented it were unknown to us then. You know, we only see those in hindsight. And uh, as you say, putting the law aside, you're asking me, did the policy work? Did it make sense? Just in a simple sort of cost-benefit way, I think it did. It's a tragic choice. I've tried to emphasize that over the years, is that nobody wants to have to make a decision like that. I didn't want to go to the Justice Department and make decisions like this. But unfortunately, war thrust that on us. And it's a decision, I think, that no matter what we did, a large percentage of the country would be unhappy with whatever choice we made. I tend to think Val Gore had won that disputed election back in 2000 instead of George W. Bush, and we were attacked on 9-11. I think Gal Gore and the intelligence professionals who were there then would have made me fundamentally the same decision that we did, because we were knocked down on the map after 9-11, and we didn't know much about the enemy. And I think we had experienced actually quite a bit of success. we just had this humiliating withdrawal from Afghanistan, something I thought I would uh, never see. On the other hand, I think we've done a very effective job of dismantling al-Qaeda. I think those interrogations uh, led to enormous coups in our fight. We did capture, because of these interrogations, the number three, four, and five leaders of al-Qaeda just weeks after the 9-11 attacks we have these arguments. Well, did that intelligence actually help us stop the ticking time bombs? It's hard to actually ever prove that, of course, because it's a counterfactual, but we've never had another attack on the scale of 9-11 again. In fact, for many years after the start of the war, we had a lot of successes and frustrating, uh, more follow-on terrorist attacks. And um, the terrorist attacks that have occurred in our country have been not through sort of the organized efforts of Al-Qaeda, to insert agents in the country and carry out spectacular attacks, they have been sort of sporadic people, I think, unfortunately, people who benefited from the hospitality of our country, our welcoming nature as immigrants or green card holders or visitors, and they sort of sporadically self radicalize through the internet in a way, carry out sort of one-off attacks, which are terrible, but at least we've stopped any kind of the cumulative force of an organized al-Qaeda, and I think that's an achievement. I mean, it came at great cost. As you say, Jerry, we lost some moral standing in the world. There were abuses at places like Abu Ghraib. But I think, you know, in the balance of it, it was worth
2: it. And just on that reputational damage to the point where today Russia, when it commits war crimes in Ukraine, which it's clearly doing, can can, however factitiously point and say, well, you know, you did torture people and you did terrible things to suspects. We're not doing anything worse. And it, it, you don't think it's undermining our ability to... To make that larger case for the virtue of our cause in the world.
1: The jury, this was, I have to say, this idea was very much in our minds at the time. We thoroughly thought about it and discussed it. Yes, if we go ahead and do this, uh, we are going to reduce our ability to criticize other people in the world when they cross the lines in much, much worse ways. I mean, I can tell you, I'm sure Vladimir Putin and his attorney general are not sitting there stressing about exactly. You know, what rules should apply to prisoners of war in Ukraine or whether to target, you know, civilian facilities the way we did. I mean, I was there for the first use of a drone with a missile to target and kill somebody. I mean, you can't believe the lengths that we worried about this thought about it, ran it through both legal and political moral filters. You know, other countries don't do that. But you're right, we understood that we might lose some of that moral High ground, but we thought it was worth it to try to stop further attacks of the kind we saw on 9 11 because we are so vulnerable because of our open society and our, I think, our forgiving nature. We are still so susceptible to terrorist groups that infiltrate the country, disguise the civilians and want to launch mass attacks on civilians, that's something that uh, is very hard for an open society to stop. So I thought it's a tragic choice that President Bush and uh, National Security Council had to make. And and let me add also the leaders of Congress (laughs) also were informed about, and they had to sort of not formally consent to it, but they had to nod their heads to it. And all of us thought at that time, in the months after 9-11, that even with that loss of prestige or moral standing, it was still worth it in order to Stop this kind of enemy.
2: John You thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thank you very much for listening. Please do join us again next week for another exploration of the issues driving our world. Thank you and goodbye.
0: For Toomey, nothing is ever quite finished. It can always be evolved. Introducing the latest evolution of Toomey, the aluminum backpack and briefcase from the 19-degree aluminum collection. Tumi reimagined these everyday essentials in aircraft-grade aluminum with contours sculpted at precise 19-degree angles. Carry the aluminum backpack and briefcase from Tumi to perfect journeys near or far. Shop Tumi's full 19-degree aluminum in stores and online at tumi.com.